This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE Intellinews. Subscribe at bne.eu. Hello and welcome to Window on the East with me, Ben Aris, the editor of BNE Intellinews. Belarus has been rocked by protests since the presidential election finished on August 9th. But what of the economy? What of business? Unlike Russia, Belarus actually boasts a really vibrant manufacturing sector. And some of the Soviet-era industries that they have there, such as Maz, the giant mining truck producer, are actually world-class. But those businesses have to exist in the neo-Soviet economy that was set up by Lukashenko. The one exception, of course, is the IT industry, which has flourished and become a significant export industry, which earns the country $2 billion a year. It's this mix of Soviet-era throwback and flourishing modern IT business that makes Belarus so interesting. But what's the business environment actually like? And if Lukashenko leaves, will the country boom? I talked to four experts about the prospects. Elena Rybakova is a deputy chief economist at the Institute for International Finance. Yuri Melnichek is a partner at Bulba Ventures and an entrepreneur in the tech sector in Belarusia. Mikita Mikado is the CEO of PandaDoc. That's a company that does things like online contracts based in Minsk. And Torsten Merkel is a CEO of Pure Energy Intelligence. He's an investor into the renewable sector in Belarusia and also based in Minsk. Greetings, everyone. Thanks for attending. Uh, we're going to have what I hope is going to be a very interesting panel about business aspects of the Belarusian revolution that's going on at the moment. I'm joined by a very distinguished panel. Um, we have here Torsten Merkel, who is uh, the CEO of Pure Energy Intelligence. Um, it specializes in renewable energy um, in the CIS. He's actually based in Minsk. Then we have uh, Elena uh, Rybakova, who's an uh, old friend of BNE's. She's the Deputy Chief Economist at uh, the Institute of International Finance in Washington. Then we have Yuri uh, Melnicek, uh, who's actually in uh, Istanbul at the moment, but has been in Minsk most of this week. And Yuri is a tech engineer, an entrepreneur. Um, he's had a number of projects, um, such as Maps.e, a cartographer, uh, project um, and normally is based in Zurich. And finally, Mikita Mikado, um, who is the CEO of PandaDoc. And it's an online uh, business which deals with e-contract signing. Um, he's also a speaker and expert, tech expert um, from Belarusia. So guys, I thought quickly we'd update on the situation. The thing with this Belarusian story is it's been moving incredibly fast. Um, we're now into the fifth day Crowds are gathering on Independence Square, um, and there are reports of uh, lots of 40 trucks or so of, of uh, troops in Oman being sent in. But the latest reports, just in the last few minutes, is that they're all leaving again. And there does seem to have been a change in just the last 24 hours that the crowd seems to have the upper hand, that there are reports of policemen putting down their shields and changing sides. Uh, it's looking optimistic, but everything's up in the air. There's still possibility of more violence. There's still possibility of martial law. Torsten, you were saying before that you've just been down there, that it's not far from your house. What's, what's the mood like on the street? Do you think people are still scared or do you think that they, they um, believe that they're winning? 
Yes, that's correct. I actually took just a stroll um, to the um, Lenin Square, which is where you have the, uh, the government, uh, the seat of the Belarusian government. And what I've seen there were tens of thousands of people. Uh, they, they were very brave. Uh, they were sort of very um, enthusiastic. It felt like in this moment, like as, as, as history um, has been written, when I then went back, I've seen uh, also families with young kids. They were not afraid of actually going there. So yes, there's probably feeling that um, that uh, maybe the, the people have uh, the upper hand already. Uh, but at the same time, also I've seen on my on my way back back, uh, back home, forty of those you've just mentioned that those are heavy armored uh, vehicles, and of course that. Um, it's very disturbing. Uh, on the one hand, you have uh, you know, like the citizens of Minsk coming together, as I said, with, with small kids and lots of young people. And then you see uh, the soldiers are still still around the security forces. That's the key point, isn't it? I mean, with the, the, the brutal beatings and very heavy-handed response to the protests that began only hours after the polls closed on August 9th on Sunday, um, the... Lukashenko was clearly trying to intimidate the population, but he's failed to do that. They're not scared. Isn't that the key takeout? Absolutely. Uh, if, if I just also uh, continue this one. Um, um, I think it, it, it all started already, of course, before the election. A couple of uh, unusual things for Belarus, starting with uh, actually having, um, in, the, in, in the first time, some really attractive candidates that were able to, to assemble the people behind themselves. Uh, then uh, when those candidates were uh, put, put to prison, you had uh, another interesting turn. As you all know, three, uh, three beautiful uh, women actually taking, taking the lead and uh, continuing the race. And then uh, in the gear up to the, to the elections, you, have, you had lots of people on the ground that were uh, on, on, in terms of grassroots movements involved and actually are trying to monitor the elections, helping with that. Uh, and the turnout and the elections was phenomenal, I think more than 80%. And, um, and then the interesting thing is that um, the crackdown that, ha that happened on uh, Sunday evening, that was actually um, resisted. And even more interesting, next, the next day, Monday evening, people still went out and they were not afraid. And that was also, I think, it came as a surprise to me that they were, uh, I was not able to, 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 um, to suffocate that. And then, and then a, few, a few other turning points, very interesting is obviously Wednesday morning, uh, when, when we've seen, um, the, uh, again, the women coming out to the streets in the morning. That was a very brave move, and I think a brave move, and that also mobilized lots of uh, Lots of people, and uh, finally today, uh, in the wake of those large government companies striking, when uh, the workers from the Minsk factory, um, uh, factory, five thousand workers or so, when they actually marched to the uh, to the Lenin Square and they were joined uh, and uh, by, by by all the people uh, that I think. So there was quite there was quite a lead up, and and, and today with, with the workers in, um, it seems that the overwhelming majority of the population is actually on the streets. Yeah. No, the, I think the strikes um, mark a, a change, a, a step up, in so much as the opposition tried to call the general strike on Tuesday, uh, and it, it failed. I mean, a few workers came out, they got arrested, 
But it was only yesterday that suddenly there was this bushfire of strikes at all of the major plants. Um, we we want to not focus too much on the politics of it um, and look more at the business. But before we go into that, the the um, the strikes themselves sort of threaten the economy, which has already been hammered by the COVID crisis um, and in the context of Russians removing its energy subsidies. So the, the economy is having a really hard time. Before we dive into the specifics of the, the, the business, um, Elena, could you give us a brief um, update of what the state of the uh, Belarusian economy is? I mean, it's been suffering. Uh, it's not doing so well. How bad is the, the crisis hitting it? Well, I think it's a structural issue, and it's the same structural issues we have seen over the last 20 years, pretty much. And we have seen these waves that uh, reliance on Russian oil subsidy um, and re threat of removal of removal of that subsidy is provoking a very sharp reaction in the economy. And over time, we have seen it a few times over the last 10, 15 years, but you haven't seen the authorities adjusting to that reality that, you know, the, the Russian authorities can keep on pulling on that string and provoking a reaction. So the latest slowdown already happened before the shock of COVID and, of course, before the recently disputed elections. So the Russian tax, oil tax maneuver, for those who maybe not follow, um, they're removing the oil taxation, which is complicated, the extraction and oil export duty, uh, to just the unified tax, which is mostly on extraction. How does it affect Belarus? Belarus um, passes on, refines some of the oil it gets. It gets a subsidized rate from our Russian oil, and also it gets some of the money transfer from the Russian budget for the exports that they do. Uh, well, that's going to go disappear by 2024, I believe, and it's going to have a, a very significant effect on the economy. On the balance of payments, it can be as much as four percentage points when it's removed. So the balance of payments is losing about four percentage points. On, on the fiscal side, it can also be two, three percentage points of GDP um, if that is fully removed. And I think the authorities might have been a bit too blasé about what that means for the economy. So this is the first one, is this sort of Russian oil uh, subsidy. And the second one, SOE Enterprises. And I'm sure, Ben, you, you will talk, and my colleagues will talk more about the sort of the lively, more private sector, and actually still some manufacturing in, in Belarus. But um, it is a long-standing belief that SOEs tend to be less efficient. You know, they are drained on also fiscal resources. And um, they, you know, they cannot be a backbone of the economy for the long run. And this is almost one of the last leftovers of the, some of the Soviet outposts in terms of the structure of the economy that have a reliance on the SOEs. Yeah, I mean, this is actually one of Lukashenko's strengths that's kept in, in place for so long because oh, you put a cash value on it. I mean, I've seen an estimate that Russia's given Belarus something on the order of $100 billion in subsidies. And this tax maneuver they're talking about now is going to cost $3 billion a year. But because of that, he's, that, he's been able to run this sort of neo- Soviet system with uh, healthcare, with the sanatoria, with all the things that the Soviet Union used to offer. And that's been incredibly popular with the working class, with the blue collar work workers, you know, because they were sheltered from a lot of the shocks. And now that's going away. But the, um, the, 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 the damage to the economy that's going to go forwards, uh, for example, the, the, the bonds, I mean, Belarusia is actually uh, fairly well managed finances. But um, the bonds were actually trading up at the start of the week and have started to sell off. 
I mean, is this an early sign of the, the economic impact that's going to happen because of this revolution? Well, I think it's important to separate markets from what's happening on the ground. Because, you know, as I sometimes sort of commented to investors, that Belarus owns one and a half bonds. It's two bonds. They're very sort of, they're very, there's very little external debt that is publicly traded. Uh, it is held in a, rel it's sort of, it's not wildly held. So therefore, I wouldn't be reading too much into the performance of the bonds because they may be lagging what's happening on the ground. In terms of the fiscal position, you know, debt is likely to hit 60% of GDP. It's not crazy by, by international standards nowadays. May, nowadays, 100 is becoming the new normal almost for emerging markets. I'm exaggerating, of course, but 60% is very manageable. Uh, but the issue is that a lot of that debt, I think a great majority of that is in foreign exchange. So the currency has depreciated. That automatically multiplies your debt by, by a factor. And also you have... Um, you know, you, you should look at the ability to repay that debt. You know, if you're not going to have sustainable economic growth going forward, then you will have an issue with, with that external debt. And just finally, dollarization of the economy is also very high. Uh, we, we just talked recently about inflation that is manageable and the central bank is doing a reasonable job. That is all true. But with dollarization of over 50% of, um, of deposits and a big chunk of lending, over 50% of lending as well, you're not having much of an effect with your monetary policy if the rest is just denominated in foreign exchange. Mm. You, um, you mentioned the SOEs, the state-owned enterprises, uh, and this is the background. I mean, one, one of the, I think, not widely acknowledged uh, facts about Belarusia is that it's actually a, a functioning economy with a strong manufacturing base and that it has strong exports. It produces these not high quality, not high tech products, but things like the Minsk tractor, the Minsk fridge, uh, heavy duty mining equipment. Uh, it also has significant metallurgical industry. And of course, potash fertilizers is a big export. Uh, I read somewhere that the entire herring catch that the, the Belarusians have is sold to Ireland. Um, and this is underpinning the economy in so much as it has real income uh, in the balance of payments. But now we've seen all of these companies come out and strike, um, which is why these strikes are so significant, because it's going to gut the, the revenue from, from the state. I mean, it can't sustain this. But throwing the question open to everyone, I mean, what, what is the um, business environment like? Because the thing with all of these companies is they're all massive state-owned Soviet-era throwback way of organizing your economy. But is there a real business environment? Are those companies like investing, modernizing, you know, to what extent, because uh, they are successful products, to what extent does, it, does Belarusia have a real working economy where it produces things? Ben, let, let, let me maybe comment on, on the thing that um, the strikes impact the revenue stream of the Belarusian um, economy there are a certain, lot. There are certain parts of Belarusian economy that are uh, extremely efficient and very profitable. Uh, tech sector is one of them. Uh, it's been working extremely well and uh, uh, in 2019 produced over $2 billion dollars of um, of money coming in the country from from all around the world, um, and that's just across about sixty thousand employees. Uh, keeps growing, uh, keeps doubling year over year, and uh, 
that's a part of the economy that's doing that's doing really really well. Yeah, there you know there are parts that are not, but there they are that are doing really well and that are now in danger. And uh, like uh, most of the companies in high tech park are thinking about a relocation if the regime wins. This is this is the extraordinary thing about Belarusia. I mean, on the one hand, you have the traditional Soviet era, like you know, uh, metallurgical plants and heavy industry and, and equipment uh, that the Soviet Union was always good at producing. But under Lukashenko, you've created this high tech, based on the high tech park in Minsk, and now they're talking about building others. There's something like just short of 300 companies in there, and software engineers, and they're selling. 90% of their output to uh, the US, to European Union, but also East and all, all the banks in, in Moscow use software developed and, and maintained in Minsk. How did this happen? How did Lukashenko bring about this vibrant, I mean, it's, it's also beating uh, Romania and, and Ukraine rivals in this IT, this software engineering. Right. How did it come about that this thing? The, the quick answer is they didn't. What happened is that Belarus has no oil. Um, Belarus has doesn't have much. Let's put it that way: natural resources, uh, and therefore, uh, if you're an educated person, you don't have a lot of opportunity uh, outside tech, uh, which was the main reason tech actually happened in Belarus. At some point, the government looked at what's happening with software outsourcing companies that were flourishing in Belarus and that they used all those weird financial schemes to, to pay their people and uh, uh, decided that they can't really control it, they can't do anything about it. So instead of controlling it, why don't we just try to legalize it and allow these people to spend money in the country legally uh, on all the goods and services that we control, anyways. So that's what happened. They didn't like that was that was the that was that was a very smart decision not to slaughter this industry, not to put people in jail that created all those companies. Um, at least not put all of them in jail, and uh, that that really worked because you have a lot of smart, educated eager people, eager to work hard. And uh, you have really nothing else. And what's the business environment like? Because, I mean, Belarus is famously sort of Soviet-run and lots of bureaucracy and uh, paperwork and stuff. Yeah, it, it, that's, that really depends on uh, whether you are part of what's called high-tech park, uh, which is where... Uh, the amount of paperwork is minimized. Uh, there's still some, like it's not, it's not great uh, to say the least. But uh, it's it's bearable. Uh, and there's you know there's the rest of Belarusian economy where it's just bad, slow, inefficient, mm. bad. Um, so for those. Within the high tech park, we enjoy the you know as of recent uh, we enjoy English law. Uh, we enjoy a lot of simplification. 
we enjoy a very, very favorable uh, tax treatment. Um, outside of that, it's very rough. So it's effectively a special economic zone. It is. Is uh, there? If I, if I may, may if, if I can kick in, because. I'm working in a sector of renewable energy that does not enjoy all the benefits the, the, the tech sector does. And yes, there is a substantial level of bureaucracy, which is, on the other hand, manageable. Just You just hire, hire an accountant to take care of all this uh, incredible amount of paperwork. Um, the experience I had uh, working in Belarus since 10 years now is, uh, and especially in difference to Ukraine, where we also work, I found uh, once you have a deal with the authorities, say an investment agreement or so, um, even so you don't really have formally rule of law, they're actually quite stick uh, and you have very reliable sort of framework to, to, to operate and that, that's what I found. Um, and in terms of you know, like renewable energy, you depend on lots of interaction with the governments, planning, construction permits, uh, designs and so on. Um, even so it is all very bureaucratic. It is reliable and almost to the to the point that it works as a clockwork. If they say uh, you have to, they have sort of twenty days time to give you a, um, an opinion on that uh, on that construction permit. They will do so. They will stick to that. And that's 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 really different also to Ukraine and the people you work with in the authorities, say in the energy sector. They are definitely are. Uh, they are well educated. They, they 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 know their stuff. They, they may potentially be a bit outdated in terms of uh, say the latest technological trends, but they are at least real, really energy specialists. Um, so, from that point of view, um, it was actually a robust environment. It has been so so far. The problems that we've seen was obviously our access to capital, uh, the, the reputation of Belarus uh, as an investment destination to almost non-existent, I think, on the map of capital markets. Um, and that also means that, of course, uh, raising capital for infrastructure projects in Belarus, um, that's it's making, quite... It's making progress as well, isn't it? I, I was, when Belarus um, did its first international roadshow, um, it was actually November 2008. And b and &E was, I think, at the time, the, the only publication that was actually following the economy. And I was asked to be chairman of the, um, the, the conference they had in London. And the Belarusians came. And what I was struck by was that, you know, this was their first international outing. They were just a bit lost. But there was a lot of investors who came, 400, who were super interested, new market opening up. But I think in that last, whatever it is, 12 years, um, They've made a hell of a lot of progress. The people I've met since, particularly in the in the in the financial sphere, um, they said that they have things like IFSR uh, accounting, and it's not because it's mandated at home, but their counterparties are demanding it because they have it, and so it's sort of reformed through osmosis, it's reformed through doing business. I mean, are you seeing the same thing? I mean, the the the, the people you're talking to, the, the the learning curve has been steep, but they're actually quite sophisticated that if, if, if you ask me Ben I can quick, quickly quickly address that yes absolutely especially uh, since the last five years since 2015 we've seen also Western institutions becoming more active EBID EIB and so on that, that help obviously um, we've also seen that uh, uh, on the microeconomic uh, level um, a different policy approach has, has commenced five years ago with the Ministry of Finance and National Bank actually are uh, 
producing very successful or implementing very successful policies, the raising of the euro bonds as an example. So yes, Elena, positive. Elena, can I ask you, I mean, I, I met with um, the finance minister, Guillermo uh, Liebich, in, in London, and I was very impressed in so much as uh, he seemed to know his stuff. They had a prudent financial policy. Um, they were there to raise some some debt, um, and they were looking at various sources of financing, but that side of it, um, the fiscal side, seems to be much better managed than before, and they're left to their own devices, as far as I can see. Well, in, exactly. I probably have similar experience of um, working from 2008 onwards. I have to say only there is one disappointment that you meet some of this. It's not lack of capacity. You meet extremely intelligent people who know what they're doing. They've done training outside. They know exactly, as you say, FRS, how to do the best possible monetary policy or fiscal management. But a lot of them leave. So over these 15 years, you sort of you establish a connection and you find some, oh, this deputy minister is very strong or this head of the department is very strong, and then they disappear. So at some point, a lot of these people also get disillusioned that the change maybe doesn't happen as much and you can help advance the structure, you know, you have, can help advance the, the, the form, but the substance remains the same, that you need to also make progress in the underlying economy. And I think that's where some of the investors lost interest over the last couple of years and, and hope. And that's why maybe these recent changes will come as a surprise. Uh, because we even, we stopped monitoring it as closely as we used to. There, you know, there was this waves of hope before and, and they didn't go anywhere. And uh, uh, yes, the, in terms of the capacity, education, you know, it's extremely strong, uh, strong economy. Um, but you notice uh, in terms of relationship with IFIs, they have requested uh, support from the IMF, the RFI, this, uh, this sort of the response to COVID uh, borrowing. And that was confirmed sometime in March, I think. We still haven't heard anything about that. To me, it's an indication that they haven't reached an agreement. That means on the macroeconomic policy, the current management team of, the, of Belarus is not capable of reaching an agreement on a relatively, on extremely conditionality light program with the IMF, which is for COVID program. Well, well um, Lukashenko has always been very anti-IMF. Um, he, he refuses to go cap in hand, and he only starts talking to them when he's really desperate. But in a way, that's one of the exciting things about this revolution, because if there is a change, then there could be significant changes uh, with things like IMF. I mean, you three guys are, are from the tech sector, and... The, there was a letter signed by, as I understand it, all the CEOs of the top tech companies saying, look, we operate in an environment where we need freedom and openness and cooperation and living in a society which is repressive and resting people. We can't operate and we will leave and take our companies out of Belarusia and go to next door, Poland, the Baltics, wherever. Isn't this a fork in the road in so much as if Lukashenko changes? Isn't this going to be a disaster, particularly for your your new economy sectors? Yuri, what do you think? Would you take your business out of Minsk? Would you go somewhere else? Well, uh, I'm not running operationally any business in Minsk, but I've invested in several ones. And our position as investors is that it's up to CEOs of the companies to decide whether they want to take their businesses out of Minsk or not. And what I, I commonly can hear... for Yuri, if you'd like. I'm sure. not going to... If we win, um, we'll continue to 
actively hire people in Belarus. It will remain our home base and uh, we'll be doubling our headcount year over year for sure. Um, we're at about 250 people in Minsk now and uh, um, we've been successfully raising money. Uh, the business is in, in a fantastic shape and we're going to continue to grow and expand in Belarus. Uh, Belarus is an amazing place for tech talent. Amazing place. It could be, I mean, frankly, it could be the best place in the world for, uh, for, for engineering talent, for technical talent. I mean, now even, even the salespeople that we hire in Belarus, they, they perform phenomenally well. And that's all due to the fact that, that people work hard uh, and uh, people are willing to learn um, because there are not, not a lot of opportunities. And uh, hopefully that's going to change. Why isn't it more famous then? I mean, I, I know about the tech sector. Oh, it's very famous. We're like, I mean, world, I mean, within tech world, yeah. extremely famous. I mean, whoever I talk to, oh yeah, I work with developers from Belarus. Whoever I talk to in Silicon Valley, they all have. I mean, it's 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 a well-known spot for software engineering. If I can extend the question, though, um, if there is a change of regime, a uh, more liberal regime, isn't Belarusia going to be one of the best investment stories in Europe? It's got all that catch-up growth ahead of it. I, I, th I think, I think has, it has a ton of potential. It has a ton of potential. And as long as the investment environment is... Um, is proper as long as the country remains friendly with European Union and Russia, Belarus can flourish with access of... That's a key question too, because again, if you read the press, everyone's saying, oh, Putin's going to march in, Putin's going to... He wants a weak Lukashenko, he wants to keep him there. And But the Belarusian people, I understand, they, they want to have a balanced relationship with both East and West. Yeah. We want to have a balanced relationship with both East and the West. And we don't know what Putin wants. Okay? Like, we have, we don't really know. We can guess, but we don't know. Uh, what we know for sure is that majority of people in Belarus want to be friends with the East and the West. And Yuri and Tosin. So uh, let me let me agree and disagree with Mikita. I do agree that Belarus was was an amazing place, mostly because of the low economical situation in different areas. And like you know, the average salary in Belarus is less than five hundred dollars, and the average salary in IT sector is at least three times higher, maybe four times higher. So for young people, IT in Belarus was seen as a social lift, like when, when they decide what to do after they finish their school. Like for most of them, 
IT industry was seen as a social lift. And uh, when I talk to, to the guys who run startups on whether they want to relocate or not their companies, they tell that it would be up to employees to decide. So I think if the regime changes and if there will be a whole excitement among people that the regime has changed, the people, the employees will stay and the industry will thrive. However, if uh, they, if, if the real people decide to leave, you know, IPAM, who has more than 10,000 employees in Belarus. and Marcus, uh, Unfortunately, I have to hop off. Uh, there is a, um, there's a concurrent call that, that I need to take. Uh, Mikita, thanks I, for joining. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for, for caring and Thank you for trying to help. We appreciate it. Thanks. Yuri, can you finish off what you were Thanks, saying? Thanks, Nikita. So, uh, like, quite often, you know, the outsourcing companies, they create a base, like, they educate people, they educate people from the junior level to, to mid-level, and from there, the startups pick up the people. And uh, IPAM recently offered all of their 10, more than 10,000 employees in Belarus to relocate if they want to relocate. This is the same position, like uh, total headcount of our startups is like, you know, probably less than 100 people. But uh, what we see is the CEOs, they, they also tell that they, companies will relocate if their employees would love to relocate. So what you're saying is that there's a potential disaster here. If Lukashenko stays on, then you could see a massive brain drain of some of the best resources, the tech resources that the country has as companies. Absolutely. 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 And like the reports say that more than 7,000 people passed through the prison in the last week alone. Mm. Like, let me repeat it again. 7,000 people were taken to prison in the last week. And some of them, we don't know how many of them, but some of them would definitely leave no matter what happens. So I think uh, it will all depend on, you know, whether the transition will happen and how the transition will happen. I hope that there will be this whole excitement that the Belarus is turning the page. And if that happens, I think many people from abroad will come back or will reinvest their resources back. Torsten, uh, we, we're nearly out of time. Can I ask you a similar question? I mean, good scenario, bad scenario. Lukashenko stays, Lukashenko goes. Would you invest more under... Lukashenko government, do you think the country will boom if he goes? What do you think is going to happen? I think if, if he goes, obviously it depends uh, what, what, what is going to happen. Yeah, if, if, if we see economic reforms and political reforms, which is probably the likely scenario, then I can see that uh, there is indeed lots of potential. History-wise, uh, as I've said, uh, Belarus as, a, as an investment de destination was almost not on the map. Because there were hardly any any transaction, a few euro bonds, uh, maybe three, I think, two from the government and one one from a large corporate, and and, and that's it. If this is going to change, uh, if there are opportunities, then um, 
I don't know, privatization, uh, then, then I can see um, lots of opportunities. That, that's right. I mean, probably nearshoring would be an interesting one, given the manufacturing base Belarus has. Uh, that, that could definitely be uh, pushed. Um, if, uh, basically, I wouldn't correct to say nothing changes, because if the system stays on like it, it will not be the same as it used to be. Uh, and I think, um, let me put it like this, from a macroeconomic point of view, it will be tough. In terms of access to capital, it will uh, it will be even more challenging. Mm. It will be even even more costly. It will, for in terms of infrastructure, to get decently priced, and uh, with, with sort of a decent tenor type of capital, will become even more of a challenge than, than it is right now because you have few options. Alina, um, same question to you. I mean, can is Belarus going to have? I mean, this uh, a proper economic crisis, financial crisis. I mean, this has been a big, big dislocation, another shock in a series of shocks. The country can weather it, but isn't it going to have to reach out for help? And if Lukashenko stays on, he's going to have to go to Moscow. If there's a new government, they have a lot more financing options open to them, do they not? Thank you. And also, I forgot to mention, this are my views, not the views of the IAF. But um, I think if the authorities, if nothing changes, or sort of the current um, regime stays, we know they already requested assistance from the IMF. So that has been confirmed. They requested in March. That means the situation internally, they understand, is, is desperate, right? If you either keep on trying, and they didn't succeed getting something from the IMF, they probably will have to go to other sources. Uh, we will see more of the same, and just progressively every round is going to get worse. It's the same balance of payments, fiscal growth shock problems. Uh, it might take them a few years before it completely disintegrates, but uh, it's not clear how the trajectory will change. If there is an opening up of the economy, uh, there is a chance to get it right, because compared to other countries where the change occurred recently, there isn't an existing um, deeply entrenched oligarchic structure that could capture the government. And I think there is a chance to get this transition, the old-fashioned transition, the right way. The, the proper sort of legally uh, sound privatizations that could benefit all rather than the selected few. And I think that would be a fantastic opportunity for all of us, not just for Belarus, but for all of us to, to help uh, the transition. It could go the way of the Baltics. I mean, here we have like Schrodinger's uh, small is beautiful. I mean, the country is sufficiently small that those reforms are actually easier to police in the way that the Baltics managed to rapidly go through that. I think Baltics also had a very strong draw for European Union, which helped a lot. And I think in some cases, Baltics is sometimes too small, <laughs> maybe too beautiful. But I think the scale in the Baltics is just too small. And the massive migration we saw during the global financial crisis from the Baltics, I think we're talking again about the depopulation in the Baltics. Well, in Belarus, I think the market by itself is interesting enough. So it has actually the perfect size of being not too small and not too big. Super. Guys, on that note, optimistic note, I'd like to thank you very much for participating and taking your time. It's been a great pleasure, very interesting. Exciting times and hope this has a happy ending, this story. All the best. Take care. Thanks. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks. Thanks. Have a nice evening. Thank you. Thank you. Okay.